0: Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email Art of Wargaming podcast at gmail.com We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy You're to the Art of War Gaming on the firm Network On War The Battle Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Verm Network. I am Yanga Malark, and as you can probably tell, this episode is rather late. <laughs> we appreciate your, your patience with this. Uh, myself and the rest of our immediate production staff overestimated our ability to get this material out and also still do the maddening amount of vacation that we had in August. Uh, we were just absolutely all over the place, and... Um, we thought, well, you know how plans are. Uh, they they uh, go, go the way of the dodo pretty quickly. So as you can tell, we are back on the air and happy to be here. And again, thank you so much for your patience. It really is uh, awesome to be back. And uh, we will be back to being consistent again, I promise. So real quick, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the battle, let's talk a little bit about guests. As you've probably noticed, I've been doing a lot more local guests, people that I wargame with here locally, either through Bellegarth or through um, the Warhammer 40k store that we have here. And the plus side to this is it makes it so much easier to coordinate time-wise and to actually do the recording. In a lot of cases, I'm able to do the recording in my studio, and we're able to get a really good vocal quality out of it. Um, other times i got this nifty little recording device that I, that I take around with me, and we get some pretty good audio out of that as well. But either way, it's right here. You know, I can hang out with the person beforehand. We can kind of go over things. Uh, if somebody's running late, it's really easy to communicate about that. So there are some obvious bonuses, if you will, uh, to doing... Short-range guests, and I absolutely love the ones that we've had on. I, you know, thumbs being back and forth, of course. I would love him on, and Toto, and Turkey Feathers, and all the others. We, we absolutely love our guests who are coming on. However, comma, it is also necessary, I think, to be getting new ideas in as well, a, a, a broader range of folks. Being able to come and speak different uh, from different tournaments and from different areas all over the place, so it is going to be my mission, uh, kind of going forward now that the the stress is off a little bit and we're able to focus a little bit more on business, to be able to bring you more guests from a wider variety, from a from a you know a greater distance coming in, you know, still having folks from and if I mean if I go elsewhere, right. If i go to tennessee again or if i go to new york or wherever and i'm able to get some interviews there that's kind of the same thing right i'm able to go someplace and do something else but the local guests are also again they're easy and i've got good people here you know i love talking meta with toto for instance and and his like gamey theory brain is lovely to pick so it's hard it's hard not to just fall back on the local talent but we'll try to bring you other uh, talent as well here going forward. And speaking of which, uh, you'll remember a while ago we did a, uh, a program with a, a war gamer of, of a different stripe, not a, not a 40k war gamer, but somebody who did war games as in like the recreation of battles or scenarios throughout history. right? So very well possibly could have done something for the 1790s, early 1800s. Certainly the, the wars, the Napoleonic Wars would be up there as something to kind of do over so it's a really cool system that they have it's 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 a really cool hobby that i wasn't privy to before that but um he reached out again which was really cool and apparently there's some folks that he knows who are putting together a one of those similar packets one of those similar uh, scenarios on the ukraine present ukraine war what's going on there, the the timeline of what's happening in the ukraine and so uh, he he reached out and was going to kind of do some networking for us and so hopefully when i do this ukraine episode um you know coming up here before too terribly long i'm able to get some other folks on it who have been studying it just as closely if not more you know and looking at it with a with a very analytical eye to make sure that they can recreate it but to be able to do that you have to understand the details right those fine points have to be able to come to one fairly easily so yeah i'm i'm very much looking forward to that and once again um we're sorry for the disruption to the to the schedule hopefully we're able to iron things out so that this doesn't happen again but i think that's enough chair chatter for for now let's move into the main story of the evening the battle After the next episode, we're going to be moving into an entirely new section of the book that deals more with combat directly. As you've probably noticed, the majority of the episodes leading up to now have been kind of a mixture of preparation and ways to think about the field in terms of kind of dressing it beforehand, making sure that we are going to be putting our best foot forward and countering our enemy to the best of our ability. But that's not to say very much about actual tactics or actual strategy. And that's coming up in the next section of the book. So it's divided into, you know, you've got the book and then it's divided into other books. You know, it's the original trilogy, if you will, but not actually a trilogy. So not if you will. Terrible analogy. But moving on. So um, leading up to there, Clausewitz is going to be getting us ready for it kind of saturating our minds with the concepts that he wants us to have moving forward as the analytical and uh, very categorical thinker that he was. So what we're looking at here is the incitement of a battle, kind of what the battle looks like as a general review, not going into specifics, not going into specifics of like strategy or tactics yet, but just sort of talking about it and then talking about the effects of victory. You know, what happens if we win? There's always the plan of what if we lose. We're trying to maintain our our line of retreat, right? Make sure that we can get out of there. We're making sure we're not losing too much strength just in case we're having to prep for a loss. But what happens when we actually win? Well, that'll be the, the latter portion of today's section. But in terms of before the battle begins, there is an understanding that there has to be mutual consent for a battle to take place at all. Uh, well, excepting a few key exceptions, but for the very, for a very wide portion of battle, it cannot take place without mutual consent, which is to say that you have to have the two armies that are ready to square up against each other. The attacker, the defender, they're, they're able to fight because of the mutual consent. Now this used to be different kind of going forward, at least to look different going forward, you know, back in the way when you had massed troops that were going against each other. You know uh, phalanx and whatnot and then that broke down into the different legions and so it was kind of the same idea but using different blocks to move against instead of like one large mass moving forward and then that kind of shifted and shifted and shifted until we get to a point where you know fighting is not necessarily mutual consent but the battle itself is and as we saw with Abu Bakr Najee and his book on asymmetrical warfare this doesn't really happen so much anymore This idea of a battle, right? Two larger forces duking it out, a conventional conflict, if you will. Most of the stuff that we've been dealing with these days is asymmetrical warfare. And even in the Ukraine, uh, asymmetrical warfare rules the game. The Ukrainians do not have the force to just do a direct slugfest with the Russians. They just don't. And so they have to fight war by another means. And the ones who could do a direct slugfest with the Russians do not want to because of the mutual risk of annihilation. So we'll kind of see what that is going forward. But, for especially for our sake, for war gaming, whether it be physical or intellectual, the only way that battle takes place is if both people agree to it. When you go onto the field, you're saying, I'm ready to fight. When, of course, you you pull up to the table and you put your models on it, obviously you've consented to fight at that point. So this is what we're looking for. And every battle can be thought of as a duel right? I mean, it's not just in terms of one person versus one person, but you're thinking about the entire field, for instance, as a singular entity. And you're fighting that entity as a part of another entity. And if you're doing something like 40k, you are the entity, right? You're the, the commander, you decide who goes where, but you're still locked in a mental duel with your opponent who is sitting there looking across the table, thinking the exact same thing, wanting to duel you in these moments. Now, again, we're not using a rapier in these particular moments, but we're still going head-to-head with another human being, or another group of human beings. And this is something that Musashi touches on as well, when he's talking about uh, fighting large groups in the Book of Five Rings. He talks about that if you really know what you're doing, fighting one person is the same as fighting a thousand And what he's talking, of course, is trying to string them out and fight everybody one-on-one rather than fighting a whole thousand people. But knowing how to do those duels, knowing how to get through people quickly, is in of itself a virtue. Now, a defender, of course, can avoid the battle for as long as they want to, need to. There's all sorts of different ways to do so. You can do a reposition. So the enemy's coming at you, you're suddenly just not there anymore. Boom. Easily done. Simple enough. You can use obstacles, so we can put up a bunch of uh, fencing or a, like a wall or something along those lines. Uh, we're able to, you know, maybe use a marsh or a cliff or a river to, to move behind or mask our movements. And, you know, this we can use this to avoid battle. And then the last one is just a straight-up fortress. Just, just have a, a position that is unassailable. Where you don't have to give battle because there's no way that they could reach you and of course this works against an army that does not have the siege capability to to break that sort of fortress scenario that we find ourselves in and they don't have perhaps the time or the manpower to wait it out because that's the other dangerous part of a siege is there's limited resources inside the fortress but if somebody is stocked up for the next season, or year, or whatever, then the besieging army, unless they have a way to crack that fortress, really are at a massive disadvantage. And they can just avoid battle, the defenders can just avoid battle at this point because they don't have to. So whether it's using something between us and our opponent, or whether it's just moving out of the way our opponent, these are ways that as a defender, we can deny the fight. We can deny the battle. We can say, I don't want to fight here and reposition somewhere else. Because isn't that, isn't that the idea of the maneuver? Isn't that the, the whole reason that we think about this movement so much is to put ourselves in a position where we are at the advantage, where our opponent is marching into or, you know, sitting themselves at a disadvantage. We're able to capitalize upon that. Is the idea so as a defender where we have that choice the attacker is, is trying to press the attacker is trying to make it happen and the defender is kind of the one who gets to say where and when at that point point. and at this point like vic this it can also be called victory in some ways you know if, if we're the attacker and we're moving against a position or moving against an army and they move out of the way that does count as a victory In a lot of ways. And in previous sections we had talked about treating every potential combat as a combat in of itself. Well, in this particular case, we went to the field, our opponent left before we did. Win? But this does have an effect on the mind. Maybe me, myself as a commander, like and let's put this into a historical sense. Myself as a commander, I can understand that a tactical repositioning is best. For the army for uh everybody involved a tactical repositioning is going to be the way to guarantee victory my troops don't necessarily understand that in the same way they might see it as a retreat they might see it as cowardice um, of course avoiding that battle is is kind of stringing out that stress you know the, the stress of of where and when and people are about so so there is a victory of sorts A moral superiority that is proven and and then of course there's a physical superiority that is proven as well because a person is moving out of the way presumably if i had a larger army and you were marching a smaller army at me a smaller less effective less well-trained army why would i move out of the way why would i be the one to deny battle when i'm in an obvious advantage and so whoever's moving away the defender for instance moving away is admitting a physical disadvantage Which is to say that the the aggressor in this point is the victor, in a a fashion, after a fashion. Now, when we're talking about this, there are two ways to bypass this. There are two ways to kind of gotcha your opponent and force them into a confrontation, force them into the battle. And these are surround and surprise. Surprise, surprise. So surround is getting to such a position that your opponent can't run no more. If the reposition is their thing and they're putting obstacles in the way, you've given them no options. We've put them into a position where they cannot reposition out of it again. This is something that I've seen people have to do. And if I'm against Toto, I encourage my team to do so, is to make sure that he cannot kind of kind of do his little sidestep. Position himself in, in such an area that is adva- advantageous. Because he'll, he'll just straight up leave a scenario if it's not good for him. And the reason I keep talking about him is we're going to have a little chat with him later on, too. But this idea of surrounding, limiting your opponent's ability to maneuver out of the way, is important. So considering this as a a reason, especially if we're doing physical wargaming, the surround brings about uh, the end to this maneuver section of the battle. A surprise is the other way. Because if you've got a surprise situation going on, trying to get out of that can potentially, really potentially, result in a rout. It's not so much a retreat, but a uh, disorganized flee away from things because there's been this surprise hit, this shock, to some point in the army, some point on the column. And at that point, we're forced to respond. Otherwise, that chaos is going to spread outwards. And so through either of these two methods, we can get our opponent to do what we want them to do. And we have to be aware of these things too. If we're the defender, we got to be looking out constantly to make sure that we don't get surrounded and be aware of our environment so that we don't get surprised by anything. And again, surprise is a little bit harder to do when you're looking at a a board or when we're looking at a a battlefield. Not to say that it isn't possible. It's absolutely possible. I've been surprised in both situations. I was surprised that Soren had concocted a Necron list that was way faster than anything i had ever seen before. Surprise. He got me. Now, he was also a really good player, I don't want to take away from that, but he used Necrons in a way that I had never seen before. And I was very much surprised by that, and it hit me hard. So both of these things, the Surround and the Surprise, give the choice to the Defender of fight or rout. Because again, in either of these situations, the retreat, the reposition, is not going to be possible in an orderly fashion. And so it's either admit defeat or fight back at this point. And so however we come about to it whether there's two large forces that have consented to fight or if we have a a surround and surprise moment where there's force the battle we come to the battle right and Clausewitz defines battle as a conflict waged with all of our forces to attain a decisive victory and remember when he says all of our forces we're not talking about just a blind charge with everything we have we can have things off the field And still have them be a part of the fight. We have active reserves, right? Or we're actively watching a flank. That is something that has been given a job. We don't just have numbers. We don't just have men or equipment that are idling about someplace. Making sure that we have everything employed. Everything has a place. Everything has a purpose. This leads us to the idea of decisive victory, which we spent all of last episode talking about. And of course, victory can be this ambiguous substance, but or subject, but we, we've talked about before how you've got the three ways, uh, or the three different objectives that both sides have, and achieving those things is also a victory, but there's going to be minor objects that are mixed up with this principal object that might influence the course or the outcome. You know, our, our primary objective, in a particular case, case may be destroy our opponent. Right, that's our primary objective, principal objective: destroy our opponent. Now, if we're able to take this hill over here to the east, that gives us a really good vantage point over the battlefield. That gives us plenty of artillery openings to the battlefield. Well, that's that's going to help maintain our principal object, right? Or taking any number of of strategic locations on the board, whether or not they are the victory themselves setting us set ourselves up to make that principal object attainable and better, <laughs> you know, making sure that it actually is a nice little cash cow. Well, these are these minor objects and they are, they are not themselves victory or defeat, but they can help contribute to victory. And he says, victory needs to be striven for as long as hope remains, as long as we might be conceivably able to be victorious, we should try for it. And this is kind of in line with St. Thomas Aquinas' Just War Theory, where we're ta- he talks about a, a fight should not be fought unless there's a way to win. This is the other side of that, which is the fight must be fought if there's a way to win, right? And it should not be given up for these secondary considerations. Just because, for instance, if we're if our opponent takes this hill over here and is able to get their artillery up, that doesn't mean automatically that we've lost. You know, that hill was a secondary objective. It, it may have kind of made us shift how we're going to accomplish our primary objective, but it's still the same. It's still the same and we still have to strive for it and, and not give it up just because other things have started to, to influence the course. But these secondary and these minor objectives, while well, again, not the principal objective, can influence the manner of the decision of the fight, the effect of that victory, and the value as a means to an end we've all heard of a a pyrrhic victory right a victory that really wasn't worth it you know we we may have beaten our opponent we may have made them retire from the field of battle but we have done so at such a cost to our own forces whether it be through sheer loss of troops or damage to equipment or any other factors that leave us at a disadvantage for our next fight. Well, this, the value of that as a means to an end and the end, of course, being the overall victory in the campaign strategically, making sure that we have a victory here that is, is valuable as a means to an end. Well, a lot of these secondary objects influence that, you know, the, the effect of that victory, and we're going to get into the actual effect of victory at the end of this section. So I don't want to go too much into that, but of course, the manner of that decision, how it's going to be resolved, can be dictated by these, these minor objectives. Last episode, we had also talked about determining like decisive action, looking for that decisive action, knowing when it is upon us, and making sure that we capitalize on it effectively. And of course, decisive action is about every single battle. In every single battle that we go into, we are looking for that decisive moment, that moment that tips the momentum in our favor, and we just ride that all the way to victory the decisive moment. And this decisive moment is different based on what our the, the opponent is and what we need from our opponent in order to win. For instance, if their formations are their, their real strong point, you know, if we know a unit that across the field, they highly rely on certain formations or certain people being able to lead. If we look across our playing board and we see a, you know, a big castle or, or a larger group that is very much dependent on either auras or certain buffs that come from the characters or models that are in there, well then that formation is the way that our opponent is going to achieve their victory. And so the way that we can disrupt that and kind of make sure that we guarantee ourselves a victory and make that decisive moment for ourselves is to break up that formation, to break up the cohesion, Because this is the way that we're able to hobble our enemy and take away their strength. And if we can take away their strength, that's a lot less effort that we need to make in the overall victory. So shattering that formation somehow, breaking up that cohesion, is very important if we know that that is one of the the main ways that our opponent is seeking to achieve their victory. Likewise, if our enemy is reliant on a certain objective you know, either a certain uh, piece of ground, or a certain building, or anything along those lines, the conquest of that point is the decisive moment. That's decisive action. Because a point that just can be given up willy-nilly, well, that's that's not a big deal. But let's say that my opponent really needs the, the center. Let's say they're playing Adeptus Astartes, right? And they've taken the secondary objective where you can go to the center and if you maintain your presence in the center you're gaining uh, victory points the whole time well by going and taking the center from my opponent and perhaps making it impossible for them to be there i have snatched the means of victory from them i've made it so that those points are not going to be points that they can acquire so in either of these cases again we're looking for what our opponent is doing what their strengths are kind of how they're going to approach The field and we're going to break them of it we're going to take away that special place we're going to destroy their coherency that in such a way it makes our victory easier the battle will go more in our favor and the results will be more favorable to us because because war has an attrition nature to it It as a nature of attrition where you lose things and i lose things and you lose models and i lose models and fighters on both sides are dying and so the nature of this relies on fresh reserves and that is either other people coming in from off the field, uh, it's coming up from units that we didn't have directly engaged in the front, being able to come and fill those holes. Whatever the case may be, fresh reserves often are the win or the lose in any particular battle. And I'm not talking about you know battered or knocked-about battalions, not not battalions that are already de- depleted in strength in some way. Those are not reserves. The point, The the whole mission of those battalions should be to rest, because as a general rule, an exhausted battalion that has already seen a lot of action is not going to perform well. Now, of course, to any rule like that, there's going to be exceptions to it. Of course, the Battle of Gettysburg comes to mind for me, where you had um, Chamberlain, who was in charge of the Union flank up on Little Round Top, and he fought amazingly up there, the the main boys that he was um, in command of, they, they pulled this pinwheel motion and got a, a right side to that flank that would save the day, kept the flank from getting rolled up, and it was a big deal. And then kind of as a, a congratulations, kind of as a, you know, good job, guys, they were moved, right, to a place where they might be able to recover a little bit more. In the center, where picket charged. <laughs> now, of course, there were other units there as well. It wasn't just Chamberlain and his, uh, and his main regiment that were there taking the brunt of it but it is one of those moments where they're still able to do well and again pickett and his guys went over a mile over open ground that's here neither here nor there we'll talk about the civil war at some point and i'll geek out about it but suffice to say as a general rule we want fresh troops and by fresh we mean we mean fresh as in like haven't been engaged to, like they're, they're not worn down already because there's an equilibrium, right? There's an equilibrium that exists between two fighters. There's an ex- equilibrium that exists between two armies and between two generals. And that equilibrium moves back and forth. And it is a slow thing to start shifting. You know, we're, we're going up against an object that is being pushed against us and does not wish to move. But as as the equilibrium goes in one direction, it goes slowly at first, and then it becomes stronger and faster with each moment. As the equilibrium shifts in one direction, it becomes harder and harder to correct it. If I start to win, it can be very difficult to start kind of getting in the way of that victory, especially because of this attrition that we talk about in war. If we're on the battlefield, and let's say we have even numbers, even numbers in terms of skill, even numbers in terms of just numeric strength, we've got even sides. And one side starts taking more than the other. Let's say that they crush an entire flank and give themselves a tactical advantage. Well, now this equilibrium is, is on their side. There is this movement towards victory. the same thing in the other way around. If we're, if we're having somebody aggress upon us and we're, we lose a limb or we lose key players, or we're losing key units, that equilibrium is being completely disrupted. And whichever way it's leaning, that's where the favor is going. And because of this, we can often foresee our fate long before it happens. We can often see our victory slipping away from us way before the last blow falls or before the last dice is cast. Even though this is the case, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we have to keep fighting as long as there is a possibility of victory. I have snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Many times on the 40k table and many times in Belagarth. I have watched it happen in both places and in both cases it is about tenacity. It is about perseverance. It is about making sure that we eke out every single opportunity for victory that we have. Because you never know. We can turn that around. There can be some excellent fights that get the equilibrium back on the other side. We can have a couple of dice rolls that don't go our way or that are overwhelmingly good that kind of shift things back. And so just because the equilibrium has moved in one direction does not mean it will be there forever. However, (laughs) once you've been doing this for long enough, like let's say I look across the field and it is just me and then 10 people on the other side who are of my skill or better well, I'm probably going to lose here. I'm still going to try, right? I'm still going to go. I'm still going to get my, my, my butt handed to me. Absolutely. But I can foresee even before I'm taken off of the field at that point that I'm probably going to lose. You know, usually by about turn three to turn four in a, in a 40k game, you know, which way it's going to go. It's already started to be decided at that point. And it's decided for a couple of different reasons. That we can see that you know the experienced general will be able to see these things on the fly the rest of us you know kind of keeping it in our minds kind of in the back there is of course the pure moral power in the mind that is leading the officers or is leading the the fight what is the feeling that we're dealing with do we feel motivated do we feel um, uh, you know, happy to be there. Are we, do we think we're going to win? Do we understand that we have the momentum? Are we riding it? Are we letting it, um, our opponent mess with our mind in any particular way? The pure moral power, whether it reduces or rises is going to have a huge effect on which way this equilibrium is, is leaning. Remember that a good portion of this last section that we've been talking about, a good portion of this, this first part of the book has dealt exclusively with moral factors that's how important it is. So this moral power, very much something to be considered, very much something to nurture on our own side. The second thing that contributes to this, this loss or gain of equilibrium is this attrition of forces or reserves. If we are starting to expend our on-field reserves or our, our on-field troops, and one of us has nice fresh reserves, well then that equilibrium has already shifted. Even if the fighting on the field is still relatively even, because of the attrition to both forces, the person with those fresh reserves is going to have a huge boost to their side of the equilibrium. And of course, just the number of forces in general. So being able to watch that, the number of models that we have on the field, the number of fighters that we have on our team, this is a very, very easy number to calculate. This isn't something that we need a bunch of abacus for. No. We can see what's happening. So this, of course, contributes to equilibrium in a massive way as well. And then the third one is the loss of ground, right? Is somebody encroaching on us? Are we encroaching on someone else? Are we forcing our opponent onto the back foot so that they're losing ground while we're gaining it? That's important too. So if all of these things are in our favor, right? If we've got the moral power swelling on our side, this patriotic fervor or the the will to kill or whatever the case may be if we've got that on our side our equilibrium presses forward if we have the attrition of forces we've got those fresh reserves on our side our equilibrium pushes even more and then once we throw that loss of ground on there they may as well quit the field that general has already foreseen their fate because we've got these three factors on our side so these are the three three factors that we need to pursue Right, In anything that we do, tactically, strategically, we are looking to preserve our moral power to have a greater advantage in the attrition, and then, of course, to make our opponent lose that ground. Lastly, we come to the effects of victory. So let's say during all of this, of course, we've either surrounded or surprised or gotten our opponent to meet us on the field of battle. We have moved the equilibrium into a place of our favor. We have gotten a few secondary minor objectives. Uh, so that we have twisted it to take advantage of it. It's got value, right? As a means to an end. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? What, how does this affect us? Because it does. You know, it can affect the generals, right? It can either give uh, confidence or take it away. Obviously, when we're winning, our confidence is, is growing. Our, our confidence in ourselves and our leadership qualities, our confidence in our troops in our equipment, in our fighting, victories bring confidence, and losses take away the confidence. And so the effects of victory there, of course, on the, on the general themselves, is the moral pressure and the mental pressure that comes with it. And this can be good or bad. Remember, uh, there's a difference between confidence and cockiness, and the difference is victory. Can we still get those victories? We can think highly of ourselves, but not think too highly of ourselves to such a point that it is a detriment and to the army what is the effect of this victory on the army well in a lot of cases especially as a moral factor there's a there's a great uh, huzzah <laughs> that goes up right everybody likes to win everybody likes it when their team wins and so this effect of the victory on the generals of the army are, are very positive positive. and it makes everything else easier this will make marches easier because people have a sense of purpose It will make fighting the next time easier because people will be going into it potentially with uh, more courage, right? Because they've been here, they've done it before. And so victory in this case is, is very useful, obviously, to generals and to armies. The states involved, which is a little bit different, or it doesn't count quite as much for us, but victory affects the states involved as well. So if we think about that as like a unit, for instance, on the field versus off the field. You know, the effects of victory on the Dark Angels while we're on the field specifically, you know, fight to fight, that is the generals in the armies, right? But once we get back to camp, the effects of those victories on the group when we're at camp, well, that's, that's the second idea. That's the second part of, of this victory, because I've seen both happen as well. You know, you've got a team that did exceptionally well out on the field and they come back and they're all laughs and joy and hugs back at camp. Everybody's in a great mood. You know, next time around, like training is easier. Everybody is is on the board. You know, these effects on the state, quote unquote, the state itself. Very useful. Very useful for the individual. And, And the exact opposite is true when we're dealing with loss. You know, the, the effects upon the states involved, I've seen some camps that just became downright morose after a hard loss. After they were really trying for something and they didn't get it. You know, that absolutely influences the way that state is as well. So, but for, the, for victory, you know, if we get the victory, the effects are overwhelmingly positive and can put us into a better position to negotiate other issues. And of course, the third one is the results of these of this victory on the subsequent course of the campaign. What did we pick up in the process? What boons were we able to get here? What were the numbers that we ended with? You know, all this stuff is gonna be affected by victory, but of course, victories can be used strategically far better than a, than a defeat. Defeats limit us. We can still use them to learn. We can still use them to try to twist our next advantage. But there can obviously be no arguing with the fact that victory is so much better for all of these circumstances. And this is going to be affected by the ratio between the conqueror and the defeated and this magnitude of the loss or win. You know, did we, did I barely win, right? Was it, were, were the points like 68 and 59, and Was it a a really close match where we were both taking hits and blocking stuff, and then it ended in, in just a flurry of blows where one person got lucky? Or was it overwhelming, right? Were we able to just stomp our opponent? No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Just able to boom, stomp them. Well, this is going to affect this magnitude. Because again, a win, any win, is good. An overwhelming win is awesome. And the effects upon the generals of the armies and the states and of course the rest of the campaign is going to be blown this is an exponential equation that we're dealing with here the better our victory is the better the the effects are going to be to the nth degree again we're dealing with degrees of magnitude like with an earthquake the difference between a six and a seven is massive kind of the same thing here and when we're talking about of course that equilibrium when we're talking about things that carry over A single fault can be repaired, but an overall physical or moral effect is not so easy to alter. If we are able to, you know, correct one thing, if we, if we realize early on, we're like, okay, cool. There's something wrong with my stance. I'm going to turn my wrist out a little bit more. I'm going to mess with my, my, my stance itself, my, where my footwork is at. And that slight adjustment can be repaired. But the moral effect of losing, especially repeatedly is harder to get rid of. And the same thing on an army. You know if there's a little thing to tweak we can do that but if it causes losses if it causes us to stumble well then the magnitude of that changes and it's not just a little issue anymore it's not just an issue with our footwork it's not just an issue with the way that we execute our attack it has become part of the mental game as well now the equilibrium has shifted against us and so we must be vigilant in this particular regard and we must understand the consequences of loss and kind of how that can affect us moving forward and when we're measuring the victory again we're measuring this ratio between we cannot overlook trophies right and by trophies we might be talking about corn you know skulls for the skull throne blood for the blood gut all that goodness but when Clausewitz was talking about this he meant very real things like a standard for instance it could be very demoralizing for the opponent to lose very very a a nice boost morale for the unit that takes it, right? Boom. They were able to capture a standard. Or equipment. Ooh. Cannons. Ammunition. Food. All these things are fantastic in the real world. Obviously, if I beat my friend at Warhammer, I don't get to go through and choose which of their tanks I take home with me, though that would be awesome. No. These are uh, measured specifically. And so, again, if we're dealing with an actual trophy like an actual physical trophy those are given out if you're at a tournament or if you're at an event there are various trophies given out for various things and they absolutely affect the magnitude of our victory it's one thing to win on the field of battle it is another thing to be given a trophy for winning on the field of battle the magnitude just went up on that so the number of trophies that we collect in a very real sense play into the effects of this victory and throughout all of this through the mutual understanding of the consent for battle, the battle itself, and the effects for victory afterwards, we need to understand implicitly that all of war is directed against human weakness. That's what we're fighting against every single time. We are looking to exploit our opponent morally, intellectually, emotionally, physically, because if we are both perfect, nobody will win. But if we're able to find a chink in each other's armor, if I'm able to find something to exploit, well, again, we're talking about the effects of victory, right? And if we understand our opponent's mortal failings, we can use that against them and make this even larger. And again, human weakness, when we when it comes to like physical weakness, people get tired. People have uh, limits to the, the shots they can throw, to the amount of time they can spend on their feet. All of this is human weakness. You know, some people get into their own heads. Some people have a temper. They get put on tilt. These are human weaknesses. And so we're constantly trying to play to that. We're constantly using these human weaknesses to try to draw our opponent into an advantageous situation for us, battle-wise. We're trying to use it throughout the battle as itself to gain that equilibrium, right? And then for the effects of victory, well, to best get those, we should have been exploiting these human weaknesses the entire time. So here to talk about this, talking about how a battle is like a duel and consent breaking formations and so on, uh, we've got my good buddy and longtime friend of the show, Toto. Here with us once again... Warhammer, Bellegarth, and all things kind of nerdy and 40k-ish, uh, is my longtime friend and uh, longtime friend of the show, Toto. T- uh, welcome back, bud.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for hosting me again. I'm always surprised you keep having me back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, what can I say? Uh, I, just, I just like you, I guess. I
1: don't know. <laughs> well, feelings mutual, so...
0: But uh, we've got this this game planned for today, and it's very different than the last several ones we've been doing, because I've been uh, on a kick of doing Imperial Knights almost exclusively and uh, really kind of perfecting the army But they're in the shop right now uh, Getting some more paint on them And I just kind of wanted to leave them there And not have to worry about the transit back and forth again right. So I'm going with an oldie but a goodie for me Which is my Admech like, right. I love my Admech, they're just thematically my favorite But they play very different
1: Yeah, very 8th edition There was a very uh, defensive army Kind of mm-hmm. hole up in one space And claim your home objective and And, and mow down everything in front of you But given the the prevalence of board control in mm-hmm. ninth as the primary means of scoring points. It makes it a lot harder to do what the Abnec want to do.
0: Well, especially with the old build. Like a lot of my army uh, that I had left over from Eighth Edition was designed to do exactly what you're saying: to castle up in the corner, uh, turn my Onager Dune Crawler uh, crawlers with their their neutron lasers op- on the opponent and. Uh, lay waste and, and uh, have some cast lands there in front to provide the buffer, but this edition, like you said, uh, favors, if not melee, certainly high mobility and the ability to go in the, and claim those objectives. Absolutely. And hold the objectives.
1: Very important. Durability is very important in this edition, and I think uh, the, the addition of Armor of Contempt really showcases that, because oh, yes. the poster boy army for warhammer wasn't wasn't doing so hot, and they needed they needed durability to compete with where the game is at right now right so it's a it's there's there's a lot that you need on a dynamic board like this
0: sure and uh, the AdMech, i mean when they were really strong when the codex first came out, and then of course the power creep uh occurred afterwards which which is natural i mean it I didn't expect Ad to be the very top of the ladder for forever right but um but yeah, that that uh, I don't have that focus for the most part. Like, you're, I mean, you're going to see that my army again is is kind of built the old way. Um, lots of infantry, certainly, which is something that you're not used to going against, at least uh, from me. No, um, and I'm not used to using. <laughs> <laughs> so.
1: it, it's going to be a very different game. It's well. uh, my, my army will remain fairly unchanged. I feel like Grey Knights. They're, they're a very elite army. They're mm-hmm. the only army I have. Um, and the, the weapons that are generally mathematically best on them, uh, are what you take in, into any army, into mm-hmm. any sort of, in, into a horde, into a, into knights, into a, into custodes. It's going to be, it's going to be a similar list. Sure. Uh, and the ways in which we get massive AP or deal lots of shooting damage are going to be on maybe one model for 10 extra points. So it's not going to change anything in your army to to switch things up super hard so it's it's about adaptation to to what you bring to the field so this should be a very interesting game i'm looking forward to it
0: this isn't unusual this is not an unusual circumstance for you because even on the Belagarth uh field you're very much used to changing circumstances like i've noticed that you're you're very good at kind of reading the field and that kind of plays into some of what we were talking about in this chapter which is kind of picking your spot
1: Exactly right.
0: Uh, not feeling rushed as to when, like not necessarily viewing a retreat as a defeat, but more of a, a strategic repositioning. Um, that requires a lot of patience, I imagine.
1: It it it, it does, and it requires uh, a humility. I would say uh, you've talked a lot about General Burnside's throwing his his men to the to the fires uh, historically, and you have to be have the self awareness to know when you're beat. Right. You have to say these situations do not favor me, do not favor my friends this is not this is not a guaranteed win, and you don't want a coin flip right. at, at the end of the day if you can secure a victory mm-hmm. that you go into saying this is guaranteed to work, this is my play to make happen uh you that's 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 what you want to set up that's what you want to aim for, and if there is uncertainty. You want to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there no shame in avoiding uncertainty and, and, and trying to find a battle on more favorable terms. And you have to, you have to measure a lot of, a lot of uh, words, please. COVID brain has, has affected me <laughs> hard uh, in the past few months. I apologize to the listeners. Uh, but you have to have a lot of tangible uh, data. Okay. That you can, that you can assess, sure, uh, sure, things like their numbers versus your numbers the 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 way the field favors east versus west, that sort of thing. and if you fail to take into account any one of those things, then you don't really you don't really know how a battle's going to go. you don't really sure. know how any confrontation's going to right. work,
0: right. Uh, just an aside, real quick. Uh, those of you who are listening, the first season will surely recognize the dulcet tones of Cassius in the background right now. Uh, he, he wanted to pull a cameo today, so uh, just wanted to let y'all know about that.
1: I mean, the internet loves cats. So we're, we're just trying to get some free advertising <laughs> oh, over here. <laughs> I, I had
0: people who wrote me after I like put the shed together mm-hmm. to like get a more like uh, sound controlled environment right. we're like what happened to cassius <laughs> where,
1: where, where is our handsome young man <laughs> why,
0: why, why is he not in the background <laughs> irritating you anymore um no and, and, and that's that's a very good point i think a lot of people they get stuck on this false concept of honor whereas if they there's a there's like a battle declared if there's a challenge issued right. if they don't face the enemy on those terms right then then they are a coward Right, uh, the, and, and so it's a matter of almost saving face to walk into certain doom. But um, I think you've seen the wisdom in being like, well, no, it's not cowardly to be like, no, I want to fight on my terms.
1: Right. Be- because talking about priorities, talking about prioritizing things that are important to you for for winning, mm-hmm. winning has to be number one. Sure. And winning can mean many different things in, in, in war gaming, in real war uh, but, but you have to be focused on what is victory and how do I attain it? Sure. And if my pride becomes the more important than the victory, that's a recipe for a loss. Sure. So you have to know when you, when you are beaten, you have to really assess how strong you actually are. And if you don't do that, it, it's hubris. You, sure. You're, you're going to walk into something stupid mm-hmm. and you're going to get wiped.
0: Well, that's so. like that's like rule number one for all the military theorists that I've read. Is like you need to understand your army's strengths and weaknesses.
1: Absolutely. And be
0: realistic about it because if you are not already, you've you've started hobbled like entering into the battle. Exactly.
1: Uh, in in our currently, I am I am zero percent victory rate against your Imperial Knights
0: <laughs> well. and
1: with their Ninth Edition Codex. Right. And it is because I do not understand my army's weaknesses well enough. Compared to your army strengths, mm-hmm. so I'll throw ten guys at a night. Like oh, ten guys—that's so many guys—and then they get murdered, and I have to go. Okay, that's not enough guys, and I really have to reassess and figure out the the right number of guys. Sure. And once once I am there, I think that uh, I will have much better sense of that of of that game state.
0: Uh, and uh, and I think that you are going that this uh, game is going to be much different than our other ones. Certainly. In terms of when we come back after the the break, I'm fairly certain that I'm going to be going, what did I do wrong this time <laughs> around? <laughs> I, it,
1: it, it would be nice, but there is... I, I, I will not walk into this with hubris, because I do not know... This is my first time playing against Admech, and I do not know their strengths or weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So there will be a lot of uh, very on-the-fly learning about how much damage I, I give and take. Sure.
0: Well, I, and one of the things you'll notice just off the bat is the... Lack of the ability to do high AP damage right. is one of the things I'm lacking with this list. The other one, with my knights, um, a good portion of the list is either super high damage and or and/or high AP. Absolutely. This one does not operate around that principle. Of course, I have a few units that are able to reach out and touch somebody and mm-hmm. do so violently. But the when we're, look, when we're talking about the three arms of, of warfare, you know, the, like the infantry, the cavalry, and the artillery... I am definitely infantry heavy with this list, with some cav opportunities, and then also some, some artillery Some big guns there. in the background. Which is different than the knights, because the knights kind of break that mold. Right. They're like, you know what? Each one of us is cav. Each one of us is going to be infantry, and each one of us is also going to be artillery right. to some degree. I mean, it's like, certain- the Helverins are more um, artillery than, per se, the, the uh, warglaves are. Right. And same thing with the the larger knights, but in this particular case... Um, the yeah, rules are defined. The rules are defined. This is going to be far more like what I'm accustomed to seeing in stuff like Clausewitz. In fact, very much like Clausewitz, because I've got a, a, a similar army composition, albeit with Scutari He didn't have Scutari back in the <laughs> late 1700s, but uh, but I do. But it's it's a similar idea. You got your your muskets marching and, and in right. and in file and stuff, but. You know, we're also going against the Emperor's finest, the Emperor's uh, secret psyker army, um, and uh, yeah, like I, I, and, and I'm going into this with the opposite, like Dodo's coming into this with confidence, as he should, he's trying to avoid hubris, I'm coming into this with like, I don't think I'm going to win this, but like, I don't, I don't intend on despairing, I intend to give good sport. <laughs> you know that's that's who I am. I don't I don't just walk away and be like, well, I think I'm going to lose, so I'm just going to ham it in. No, I'm going right. to make you work for it. I understand. I you understand. still might table me turn two, but I'm going to make you work for it. We'll that. see.
1: We'll <laughs> see. We'll see how it goes. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I, like I said, this is this is going to be very interesting. I, I apologize for the. As as we've talked about before, one of the things about Warhammer that is unlike other games is that it requires quite a bit of homework.
1: It really does.
0: Uh, I was demonstrating to my wife the other day the amount of books that I've had to memorize like the rules of in order to play this game and she just kind of shook her head at me. (laughs) I was like, I I know I'm cruel to myself. (laughs)
1: You're you're walking into a dangerous spot right now, Malark, because if we start talking about game theory and game design, this little 15 minute intro is going to go for three hours. (laughs) So I'm going to stop myself right here and I am going to wish you good luck. I hope that we both have fun in our endeavor today. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what your admic have in store for me.
0: Sounds great, my man. Let's get to it. We're back now after a devastating loss on my part and an amazing victory on Toto's part. We're talking a near-perfect game here. Uh, he'd have been two points shy of a perfect game if, if our armies were fully painted. But uh, Stunning victory, my man. Stunning.
1: Thank you very much. It was, uh, definitely wasn't easy and it didn't uh it didn't always look as lopsided as as it wound out being wound up being but uh it was a it was a very fun game. I definitely had a fun time and there were some comedically bad rolls oh my God that came out of your your <laughs> your your secondary dice dice oh. set I think maybe they're jealous of the black and yellow those green I golds. Think, like we
0: we've talked about it before on the show that uh of course there is no statistical difference between various dice. But there is absolutely a statistical difference. A uh, 100%. 100%. Difference. And, uh, man, I just got the worst roll. I mean, like, one of them was three ones. My My tech priest was supposed to do something. I interrupted On twos. Him. Yeah, on twos. I was hitting on twos.
1: And the man got three ones, and And I think there were two Snake Eyes charges this game. Yep. Two. One of them went through because of your good positioning. So I was right so there. <laughs> that's a great example of uh, positioning to mitigate loss. Sure. Uh, because, you, you know, if you... Like we were talking about before in the episode, if you can ensure a guaranteed success, mm-hmm. setting up for it is always the correct move. Right. And so you can, you can completely mitigate failure by sitting around one and a half inches out of a unit. You had the option to do it, and you had the wherewithal. So that was, even in the worst possible outcome, you still achieved what you set out to do which I think was really the embodiment of that sort of philosophy.
0: And I managed to score, uh, I was in the mid-20s. I didn't actually finish totally at my points because I didn't find it to be important. But uh, (laughs) I was in the mid-20s. And so, like, with the extra 10, I would have been in the mid-30s. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't a horrible game. It wasn't a lockout. No, certainly not. I may have chosen some very bold uh, secondaries. But with the field control that you you, uh, practiced, I mean, I didn't even get onto your half of the board.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I was trying very hard to shut you down. I I wanted to, my whole game plan was to take center field, and I I have a a very stalwart unit of, uh, of Terminators right now that do not like to die. And so I wanted to get them onto the center board as fast as possible. I even considered just leaving my warlord alone for a while to do so that would have right. been wrong we cool. didn't do that i wish you would have <laughs> it might it might have been a closer game if that were the case it might oh. have been uh, really turned the tides
0: which yeah, is yeah, an yeah.
1: unintentional pun we already used that one we can't do I that know. twice
0: <laughs> it's an ability his army has if we haven't gone over that yet like the the tides of convergence and, I, and, and so that was the other big thing is that your your rules worked incredibly well for you because you started with the tide of shadows which kept me from hitting you Absolutely. and then once you got in you used this tide of convergence which gave you mortal wounds when you were in the melee phase and exactly. so like it was a very good combination of your rules thank
1: you very much and i, I think uh your army has a tough time into gray knights. I think I think knows. admec as a whole, as a unit that wants to stay a little further away and doesn't really feel like getting up there and slugging, uh, is going to fall victim to that. It's a very clear path forward for me, right? I right. If I'm too far away, try and try and stay safe from your good shooting. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in close, try and maximize my ef- uh, efficacy. Right. So
0: well, and it's it's also a just a weaker army in general, especially with armor of contempt. Those uh little. Like the little negative one that we got, the little boost. Because last edition, our galvanic rifles were 401. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that was. It was supposed to be the same. There were bolters. Yeah, but, like, worse. Right. <laughs> and, um,. And so with the negative with the negative one that they got, it's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And then suddenly the Armor of Contempt pops up, and it's like, okay, well, that negative yeah. one doesn't matter at well,
1: all. You're back to bolters again.
0: Yeah, back to bolters again. Even worse with your Tide of Shadows because suddenly right? you're saving on twos all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know that my night list seems a little OP sometimes, but that <laughs> negative four is important. Like, it that's, is. That's the way that I actually end up dealing wounds to anybody.
1: Against, against those stalwart terminators from earlier those negative four that's just going to take them to a three up safe right in the right circumstances right so and that's it, nuts it's really it's really something else the durability of certain units in ninth edition is genuinely absurd yeah. at the present moment i would say
0: Well, there's there's a few broken combos. I wonder if they're going to get nerfed. But, uh, I mean, using them, you're using them extremely well. Again, I kind of left those Terminators alone because I was like, I'm not going to bother. Right. (laughs) They're they're virtually invincible right now. They're not in my immediate threat zone. Like, they're where I want to be. But they're not immediately threatening to me, so I'm just going to leave them be and try to shoot at other things. And I killed a few things. You
1: absolutely did. Yeah. And, and and I think that was the correct call because they're they're a slow-moving wall. Right. They're not going to aggress on you. They're not going to charge you at your home base and leave the center. They just want to hold an important spot on the field mm-hmm. and put apply pressure. So you were really prioritizing targets very well right. by, even though they were big and they were tough and they were scary, it, it, you would have been... Throwing shots away, dumping ammunition into them uh, that could have been spent actually doing damage. Right. So your prioritization of kind of separating the wheat from the chaff of my army and trying to thin it down until my bulky boys have no support was, it was very smart. I was down to almost two Dreadnights at the end of the game. Right. And so you were really doing a good job of eliminating my shooting and eliminating the threats that were very present to you while leaving. Even though there were a big looming scary fog on the horizon, that's all it was. So,
0: and again, not not in, entirely blaming dice for anything, but there were several rolls that could have, <laughs> like you said, it, it wasn't completely one sided there for a minute. Like Certainly I, not. I, I, there was that one game not too long ago where you said you had a glimmer of hope, and that yep. made it so much worse. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you felt that today, huh? It yeah. was kind of like you know, I might be able to if I can hmm. shoot X, Y, and Z. Right. I think I might be able to. And you're
1: not asking a lot, right? right. You're like, if I can just get like the statistical hits. average rolls yes. once or twice
0: yeah i would be doing just fine and then three or four disappointing and borderline maddening rolls later i've realized that i've lost the game yeah um but then keep going on a spite i still grabbed a couple of more units because you know i i, I have a hard time admitting defeat absolutely somebody drags me kicking and screaming away from the table
1: <laughs> it's it's uh it's, it's an honorable way to to serve out your career sir
0: well, I try not to be a bad sport about it. I just, uh, I just enjoy good sport, <laughs> and you never know. You never know until it's over, right?
1: That's very true. Sometimes you don't. You don't get the sad rolls. You get the miracle miracle rolls, and you really get to just make that make that magic comeback. So.
0: So were there any priorities that you started off with that uh, that shifted? Like, was there, were you had a pretty straightforward game plan, or was there at some point where you were like, okay, I need to switch up my game plan a little bit here?
1: I would say that due to the nature of the game, I didn't have to adjust very much. Mm-hmm. What I tried to do worked out the first time. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was trying to identify uh, points that I could control on the map that were out of view of your most powerful shooting units, mm-hmm as well as uh, kind of trying to goad you into shooting, you know, my my Grandmaster who can blink away, that sort of thing. Which, I think you handled that very well this game, the relic that I frequently use, which allows me to escape being shot. You just got it out of the way.
0: Game 1. I mean, you you jumped right in front of of me into the center objective, Mm -hmm. and while that was good for the two points that you scored, I was also like, okay... Well, I'm going to just blow that thing right now. I've got other shots, but I know you're going to move. Exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. It, it, it was very well done, and I, I wanted to. Uh, I I had a secondary that involved eliminating more of your units mm-hmm. per per turn than you eliminated of mine, mm-hmm. and so I was trying really hard to play for those secondaries. Sure, and that was, I would say, my priority was was controlling the center with uh, okay. with the primary secondary. However, we want to talk about those. Sure. Um, and trying to be aggressive enough that I'm taking down single
0: units. So conquer and defend a place, but also having uh, just destroy, destroy the enemy up there as well. Of course, uh, that's an oversimplification from from last episode. Of course, within destroy the enemy, we have a lot of different levels of that, a lot of different, um, you know, destroy the enemy, but are we sending in snipers to take out their HQs? Right. You know, destroy the enemy, but are we targeting their tanks? Like, there's a lot of different ways, except for just like rolling over them to destroy the enemy. Absolutely. And so, like you were saying, you were finding these, these, these points that you could exploit. Um, yeah, working from there. It was very well done.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was. Uh, I went I tried to go out the sides and come in through the center, and I, th- I think you had so many of your boys in that center line that I was scared to stand there. Yeah. On it, like you, there was my optimal play was to just get out of the dang way of your optimal play I yep. think and that's where and when things I was living, came together
0: with so. with all that artillery that I was toting and with the reliance I had on certain, center artillery certain. I had to take up that center position because we were doing not the kitty corners one but just like just squares right and so there was this mm-hmm. large lane down the center with the walls on either side so it was like either completely constrain myself by going to the sides or try to take a strong central position so exactly. I, my my uh my plan my movement was pretty predictable
1: I, I, yeah, I think you wanted, you, you was a very, this was my first time playing against your ad mech, mm. um, and it, it felt very much like what you had told me it was probably going to resemble, was trying to defend that position, use that artillery mm-hmm. that you have and, uh, and maintain, so.
0: Well, it's, it's a similar idea, similar looking army to something that Clausewitz may have said. Like mm-hmm. I said, the artillery is a bit more mobile, but, uh, one of the things that Clausewitz did not account for was psychers. <laughs> Which was an oversight on his part. It really
1: was. You'd think that uh, that you would you would consider such a concerning opponent yep. in, into your into your uh, strategic ploys,
0: but he decided just leave it out. So we have to fill in the blanks, y'all. We have to fill in the blanks and say that Psykers upset <laughs> the, <enormous laughs> the,
1: the natural guidance. balance. Yep, it's yeah. it is a, a tragic burden that we as forty K players must bear, and I as a forty K player must exploit. Malark, thank you so much for having me on the show. Good game.
0: Good game, sir. And uh, we will talk to you all next time. Thank you for listening. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of war gaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the EarVerm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at EarVerm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off.